0: Well, you know, the fact is every single day, every single one of us makes lots of choices, right? We do. We all make all kinds of choices, all day, every day. Uh, And many of those choices are probably really small ones, right? Things of probably lesser significance than others, like choosing which cereal box you're going to eat breakfast from or which socks you're going to put on, while other choices obviously can affect our lives profoundly, like the moment you say yes in marriage, or uh, the day you decide to start a family. We, We all make all kinds of different choices every single day, some really small ones, some really big ones, and probably the majority of those fall somewhere in between. However, as different and varied as our choices may be from day to day, there is a consistency for most of us, a common denominator for determining those choices that we make. And that common denominator is typically whatever is best, or at least whatever is perceived to be the best for us. Whatever choice we believe will benefit us the most, both in the little choices and the big ones. Typically, we, um, for instance, we choose our wardrobe for the day based on what would make us feel the most comfortable or maybe what would make us look the best. We make decisions about uh, where and what we're going to eat based on what is best for our bodies or maybe just what we would enjoy eating the most. We make career choices and relationship choices and purchasing choices and even very simple personal choices every single day based on what we believe will bring us the most personal benefit or the most personal satisfaction because that's our natural inclination as human beings to make choices that best serve ourselves. And yet, as Christians, We're supposed to be followers of Jesus Christ, right? We're supposed to emulate him, the way that he lived his life, the the kinds of choices that he made, and his earliest followers certainly understood that. The apostle John wrote, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 5, and 6. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 1, and 2. The Apostle Peter wrote, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 Obviously, Jesus' first disciples, those who were actually with him every single day, they knew that Jesus intended for us to live our lives just like he lived his. And where, where did they get that idea from? Well, of course, they got it from Jesus himself. He said to them, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John twelve, twenty-five, and twenty-six. So there was this very clear and honestly very basic foundational understanding between Jesus and his disciples that we're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to live like he lived, which means making decisions on a regular basis that do not necessarily benefit us directly. Right? But how often, if we're being honest, how often do we make decisions in our daily lives that do not directly benefit ourselves or meet some immediate desire that we may have. How often do we knowingly and willingly and even joyfully make a choice that will undoubtedly benefit someone else while making our own lives harder? Because that's exactly what Jesus did every single day. He denied himself He let go of his own desires. He disregarded his own needs. He refused to make choices that would make his own life easier, preferring instead to make the difficult choices and then willingly accept whatever hardship those choices brought about in his own life for the sake of serving other people and ultimately his Father in heaven. And that wasn't, by the way, based on a feeling. Okay, when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane just before being taken away and crucified, knowing good and well what was coming, he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 38, and 39. You see, Jesus' decision to serve the Father's will in that profoundly difficult moment had absolutely nothing to do with feelings. He told his disciples his soul was very sorrowful. Okay, Jesus certainly did not feel like going to the cross. No, that decision had nothing to do with feelings and everything to do with a choice. A choice to serve the Father, no matter what hardship that choice would ultimately bring upon himself. Okay, But the reality is, we don't live like that today. Not, not in the American church at least. There may be exceptions to that, I understand. But on the whole... We have been taught to love ourselves and to make choices that benefit ourselves before anyone else because God wants us to be happy. Well, look, God does want us to be happy. He most certainly does. But he also wants our happiness to be found in him, in choosing him instead of being found in choosing the temporary pleasures of a self-serving lifestyle. It's why David wrote, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4, because David knew that the source of true happiness was only found in God, not in serving ourselves. Also one of the non-negotiables of the gospel, by the way. You see, the gospel demands that we make a choice. Either the way of Jesus Christ or the way of ourselves. But to be sure, it has to be one or the other. Because there is no middle ground. There was no middle ground with Jesus. There was no middle ground with his disciples. And listen, if you're going to live a life that has great impact in this world for the sake of the gospel, then there cannot be any middle ground in your life either when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. You simply have to choose, if you're serious about being a follower of Christ, then you have to choose whether you're going to spend the rest of your time on this planet serving yourself first or serving Jesus Christ first. Because there really is no middle ground. And that happens to be the very message that we find Joshua sharing with his people, with God's people at the end of his astonishingly remarkable life as we draw to close this morning our study through the book of joshua at 110 years old Still so full of vigor and passion for God and his people, Joshua gathers the Israelites together to address them one final time to renew and to ratify God's covenant with them And what actually was an echo of Exodus nineteen seventeen, where Moses gathered the congregation at the foot of Mount Sinai to ratify the covenant between them and God the first time. So here, at the end of Joshua's life, rather than giving them some soft and sweet and endearing farewell address, now Joshua draws the proverbial line in the sand and he makes that now famous challenge to the people of Israel. He challenges them to make a choice because he knows he won't be around much longer to lead them and yet he so desperately wants them to continue following after God that he stands before the nation of Israel and he says, look, you have to make a choice. So what's it going to be? How are you going to choose the rest, uh, to live the rest of your lives? Because you can choose to serve yourselves if you want to. You can choose to serve other gods if you want to but listen as for me in my house we will serve the Lord this was a defining moment for God's people then and the truth is we need that same kind of defining moment for God's people now we need Joshua's in the halls of our nation's capital today we need Joshua's in our pulpits today We need Joshua's in our families today, men full of vigor and passion for God and for his people who are not afraid to stand up and say, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unfortunately, that is precisely what I think we're lacking in so many of our leaders, in so many of our churches, in so many of our homes today. People of God who aren't afraid to make the hard choices every single day to serve Him, even before they serve themselves. And you understand, that's, that's what we're actually talking about here, because that is what we're actually lacking today. See, serving the Lord isn't just being willing to stand up and say the right things. Everybody does that. Anybody can do that. No, choosing to serve the Lord means actually choosing to deny ourselves. And that is what we have a woeful shortage of in our culture. People who are willing to boldly deny themselves so they can actually serve God the way that he has called us to serve him. That's what Jesus modeled for us. It's not just what he said. It's what he did. He served God by denying himself because, look, you cannot serve God without denying yourself. Do you know that? I'll just say it again. Please let it sink in because I have to. I have to let this sink in often in my own life. You cannot serve God without denying yourself. Right after Jesus said to his disciples, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The very next thing he said after that was, now is my soul troubled. Notice that's a statement. There's no question mark there. In other words, you better believe my soul is troubled. We already read that his soul was very sorrowful later as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you see what he was saying? Jesus was saying you understand my soul is wrecked over what I know I must do in order to serve my father in heaven but this is the entire reason he put me on this earth to begin with to deny myself so that I could serve him in the way that he wants me to and that is exactly what I am going to do it's another way of saying I know That what God is calling me to in my life today, it's going to be hard at times. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is a resolve from deep within your troubled soul, not just to stand up and say the right thing, but to deny yourself so that you can stand up and do the right thing. That's what our story is about today as we close out such an amazing sermon series from the book of Joshua, this epic story. So let's turn there. If you have your Bible, we'll put it up on the screen if you don't as well. And let's read this final chapter together and see what Joshua has to teach us about serving God with your very life. Joshua chapter 24, we'll begin with the first 13 verses. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. The Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. You went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you the two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So after gathering the nation of Israel together at Shechem, God speaks through Joshua and gives a summary basically to the people of all that he'd done for them from the time of Abraham right up to the present day. And before we talk about what God did say here, I just want to point something out about what he did not say. Okay, even though the Israelites often rebelled against God from the time they left Egypt until now, all through their wilderness wanderings, and even though they disobeyed his orders in some of the key battles in Canaan that cost them dearly, and even though they failed to consult with God before fighting some of those very key battles, and even though they failed to completely drive the Canaanites out of the promised land as commanded before and during those battles, and even though they often made a complete an entire mess of their lives and their calling all along the way. In spite of all of that, notice that all of their sin and all of their disobedience and all of their failures are glaringly absent from this historical summary given to them by God himself. Not a mention. I'm sure that spoke volumes to them then, and listen, it should speak volumes to us now about God's disposition toward those who belong to him. It says so much about how he feels about us, even though we make a mess of our own lives and a mess of our own calling sometimes, right? Even though we sin and we disobey and we fail miserably at times in our lives in God's sovereignty when he calls us to himself and then we choose to serve him through humble repentance he casts all of our sin and disobedience and failure as the prophet Micah says into the depths of the sea. Micah 7:19. Just as he spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31:34. This is the very picture of a loving God who washes us clean from the filth of our own sin and floods our lives with grace and forgiveness and love even though we don't deserve it. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea and he remembers it no more. You see, this is what allows us to be able to deny ourselves and to serve him to begin with. It's not that he... He forgives us because of what we've done for him. No, it's all about what we can now do for him because of what he has already done for us. This is the message Jacob was giving them here in the story. God through Jacob as he explains all that he's already done for them without once mentioning all that they had failed to do for him along the way. It's such a powerful message being conveyed here, and that's just based on what he did not say. (laughs) Let's talk about now what he did say. Okay, God is making sure that his people understand that their salvation and inheritance is his doing, it's something that he initiates with those whom he has called to himself. In other words, God alone is the initiator. Satisfier and final arbiter of our salvation. These 13 verses are a powerful treatise on the sovereignty of God. From Abraham all the way through, every step of the way, through every suffering, every attack, every wandering, every barrier, and every battle, no matter what the people of God faced, he was right there with them, giving their enemies into their hands, as he describes it, in verses 8 and 11. And that phrase, into your hand, was an ancient Near Eastern expression that represented power or control. So even the authority and control that the Israelites had over their enemies, they only had that because God gave it to them. And then he explains in verse 12 how he gave it to them. He says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. The word hornet in that verse is probably a symbol uh, for the terror that God often rained down on the enemies of Israel in battle because that same Hebrew word for hornet and the Hebrew word for terror are used in uh, conjunction with one another back in Exodus uh, chapter 23 where this conquest of Canaan was prophesied and God talked about going before them to drive out their enemies. The point being that God not only won the battles for the Israelites, but he actually went ahead of them. He went before them and he terrorized their enemies before the Israelite armies ever even arrived. And then just to drive the point home that God was the only reason they were able to enjoy the promise of Canaan at all. He ends the passage with, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, hey, this was all God's doing. Every bit of it because he is sovereign over every hair on our heads and every beat of our hearts and every breath in our lungs. God is in control. Matthew 10:29 Jesus said, "Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father." In first century Hebrew culture, the sparrow was considered the smallest, the least significant of all the creatures, and the penny was the least valuable of all the Roman coins. And yet Jesus said, not even one of these sparrows falls apart from your father. In other words, God is sovereign even over the most seemingly insignificant events. And to believe anything less than that, is to attempt to diminish the very essence of who God is, which undermines our understanding of who it is we serve. Okay, I don't want to serve a God who isn't in control. The thought of serving a God who is not sovereign, a God who has left the fate of this world up to us, are you kidding me? That in itself is nothing short of terrifying, not to mention it is an exceedingly vulgar insult to the nature of an almighty, all-knowing, all-present God who created the very air that we are breathing. God, help us not to use the air in our lungs that you've given us to breathe out insults against your name. Sometimes the truth is I think we've become far too casual in the way we think about and talk about God. That wasn't always the case. When Ezra the priest spoke of God, he said, "'Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power "'and the glory and the victory and the majesty, "'for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. "'Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, "'and you are exalted as head above all. "'Both riches and honor come from you, "'and you rule over all.'" in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. First Chronicles twenty-nine eleven and 12. The prophet Isaiah understood this well as he wrote down these words from the Lord. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. You see, these great men of old understood that God was absolutely sovereign. The Apostle Paul wrote in him, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 11 and 12. God is sovereign over every single part of our lives, which actually should bring us unspeakable peace and comfort and confidence. Not that life will be without hardship or heartache, no. But because we serve a God who is sovereign over even our hardship and our heartache, we can find peace and comfort and confidence in the knowledge that he can use even our greatest hardships and even our greatest heartaches ultimately to serve his eternal purposes for our eternal good. That's why Paul was able to say God works all things together to the counsel of his will, not just the pleasant things or the easy things, or the pleasurable things. No, even the most difficult things. He works it all out according to his sovereign will. The alternative is to serve a God who has no control over most of what happens in this world. That's certainly not the God we read about in the Bible. Furthermore, he couldn't work all things together for the counsel of his will if he wasn't ultimately in control of all things. Now, having said all of that, the second half of the story shifts from God speaking to the people about what he's done for them through Joshua, to Joshua speaking directly to the people about their response to what God has done for them. And it comes in the form of a covenant treaty And the other side to this story, by the way, as we'll see, it's a renewal and a ratification of God's covenant with Israel. Let's read it together, verses 14 through 28. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth. The terebinth is a a Palestinian oak tree, by the way. And that that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Okay, so in the first 13 verses, God reminds the people of just how much he loves them, which is evident by all that he's done for them. And so in response, Joshua says to the congregation, now therefore, in other words, because of who God is and because of what he's done for us, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Okay, to fear the Lord is first of all to recognize the sheer magnitude of who God is and the unlimited nature of what he's capable of, and then to respond to that appropriately. And that appropriate response is what the rest of the chapter focuses on, our commitment to serve God in sincerity and in faithfulness. In fact, uh, the theme of service to God is so central to this final chapter of the Joshua saga that we find the word serve in the Hebrew, Abad, in the ancient Hebrew, it's used no less than 16 times just in this chapter, and nine of those between verses 14 and 18, so it's really important that we understand what Joshua meant when he used that word, because he used it over and over and over and over again, okay? The root of that word in the Hebrew referred to someone being a slave, or a servant, not in, the, uh, not in the oppressive sense that we think of slavery today, but very much in the sense that God is a king, and we belong to him. We're not his buddies. We are his subjects who happen to be utterly and absolutely devoted to their loving king which is precisely how these men in Scripture saw themselves. Moses and Joshua are both referred to as a servant of the Lord in Joshua 1.1 1, 1 and Joshua 24.29, with the word servant in both of those verses being the Hebrew word ebed, which is directly translated as slave and which comes from the same root word for serve that Joshua uses all throughout the chapter. And by the way, lest we think this is merely... Uh, some kind of Old Testament uh, concept or context, the Apostle Paul referred to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus in Romans 1.1, and then again where he also included Timothy in that description in Philippians 1.1, in both cases choosing to use the Greek word doulos, which is literally translated as slave. Okay, in each case, These are men who recognize who God actually is and what he is actually capable of. And as a result, they express their undying, sincere and faithful devotion as grateful subjects who belong to a loving and almighty God. This is exactly what Joshua is trying to get God's people to recognize and acknowledge and commit to here at Shechem he's driving home the point to the Israelites that, hey, you must choose to serve God, to become sincere and faithfully devoted servants of God. If they're going to be able to honor the covenant that is being ratified at Shechem, they're going to have to choose God. And so Joshua (laughs) holds nothing back. First of all, he very intentionally chooses Shechem as the meeting place because of the profound significance that city held for God's people and more specifically for the patriarchs of Israel. Okay, Shechem was the place where God addressed Abraham for the very first time in Canaan all the way back in Genesis 12:7. Shechem was the place where Jacob purchased land in Genesis 33 where Joseph's bones were ultimately buried. Shechem was the place where Jacob led his household in burying pagan idols in Genesis 35, which is, by the way, particularly significant in light of the fact that when Joshua tells the Israelites to put away the foreign gods that are among you, here in verse 23, if you read that in the Hebrew, he is quoting verbatim what Jacob spoke to his family at that idol-burying ceremony back in Genesis 35. And I'll just tell you There's so much more that I wanted to tell you about today concerning the details of this ceremony that we're witnessing in this chapter, but we just don't have time to go through all of it, but I'm going to mention a few things here because it's too good not to. Keep in mind as we go, That every aspect of what Joshua was doing and saying here was intended to capture and to captivate the hearts and minds of the Israelites because he didn't want them to miss the gravity of what was actually happening here. So this isn't a casual get-together. No, he calls this meeting a formal, in fact, royal meeting at Shechem, this place of such rich historical and theological significance for God's people but not just any place in Shechem. We have a wealth of archaeological evidence that Shechem was an important center of pagan worship uh, in the Middle Bronze Age, about 2100 BC to 1550 BC. And among the many courtyard temples there, there stood one most well-known, the Fortress Temple, referred to as Elbereth in Judges 946, which scholars believe... Was the very spot where Joshua was standing as he called the people of God together for this one final gathering before he died. And what a gathering it was! Where for the first 13 verses in the chapter, Joshua stands at the fortress temple and prophesies a direct message to them from God about all that he had done for them. And then he intentionally follows a well established royal ceremony in order of ratifying a covenant or a treaty between a a suzerain, a, a sovereign, a conquering king, and that king's new vassals or subjects. This was a a well-known royal ceremony at the time. The Hittites were famous for this kind of ceremony. But it was practiced throughout Near Eastern uh, cultures. And so this was a big, big deal. And central to that ceremony was the part where the vassals, or in this case the Israelites, pledged their allegiance, their loyalty through sincere and faithful servitude to their loving and conquering king. There was so much going on here. The weight the gravity, the significance of where they were standing and who was addressing them and what he was challenging them to do and the way he was challenging them to do it. It was nothing short of awe-inspiring. The heaviness of the moment must have been palpable for the Israelites as Joshua stands on the steps of the fortress temple and thunders away about the faithfulness of God and the covenant that he wanted to renew With them on that great day. I just want you to understand the backdrop for the moment when Joshua says to them, standing there at the center of pagan worship, surrounded by pagan culture. In the place where Jacob had buried pagan idols in the past, as Joshua leads the people of God into a royal, sacred ceremony. This is the profoundly historic and theological backdrop for God's people. The moment when Joshua says to them, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so with all the pomp and circumstance of a royal ceremony, with all the courage and backbone of a battle-hardened warrior, with all of the force of an irrevocable royal decree, Joshua draws a line in the sand and proclaims to the people that no matter what anyone else does, he is choosing to serve his king with his very life not only says a lot about the heart of Joshua, but it is also a clear indication of the free will of man. Because after 13 verses, which so powerfully demonstrate the sovereignty of God, Joshua doesn't say, so as for me and my house, because God is sovereign, we have no choice but to serve the Lord. No, he says to the people, even though God is sovereign, you still have to choose whom you will serve. That decision is still up to you. So what's it going to be? Okay, the fact that God is sovereign, don't be confused. That doesn't nullify our own free will. There are certainly people who believe that those two doctrines, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, are mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. I don't believe that to be the case at all. Because all throughout Scripture... There's clear evidence of the sovereignty of God over all creation and over all of time as we know it, as we've already read some of those. And yet there's also clear evidence of the free will of man as a part of that creation throughout that time as we know it. Both of which are being demonstrated here in this one chapter. So how can it be that God is sovereign over every hair on our heads and every beat of our hearts and every breath in our lungs if we also have a free will to make our own decisions? Listen, the answer is our free will is not only one aspect of God's love for us, it is also actually an aspect of his sovereignty over us. God created this world and determined its beginning, middle, and end before it ever existed. And yet within that good plan, because he loves his creation, He gave us the free will to be able to make choices that bring with them very real consequences, both good and bad. The alternative was to create a world full of mindless, pre-programmed human beings who had no choice but to obey. Well, which would you rather be, right? It is far more loving for us to have freedom of will even when we choose that freedom to disobey a loving God. But don't think for a second that just because we have the freedom to make our own choices that God isn't big enough or powerful enough or able enough to work all of those free choices that we make no matter what those choices are, both good and bad, all together ultimately to the fulfillment of his will. Which again is why Paul says that God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. All things that includes the good things and the bad things, the, the good choices and the bad choices that he allows us to freely make, whichever we choose. Even though that choice hasn't necessarily been predetermined, he's still sovereign over all of the possible choices before us, regardless of which one we ultimately choose. That's how sovereignty and free will work together. Precisely because he's sovereign, even when we make the wrong choices, the ones that he does not want us to make, God is still sovereign. He is still big enough and powerful enough to bring about his own will in the end. Now, that's all very theological. Let's talk about why it's also very practical and extremely important for us to understand how this works in our lives every single day, because along with our free will comes a responsibility. In fact, just like the covenant of old, The gospel demands that we choose who we're going to serve. The gospel requires a response. So choose this day whom you will serve. That was the clarion call of Joshua in the final days of his life to God's people then. And it is the clarion call of the gospel of Jesus Christ to God's people today. Because the gospel demands a response and it is up to you and you alone to decide. No one can make that decision for you. And look, God will not make that decision for you. Choose this day whom you will serve. And of course, the people responded to Joshua in verse 18. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And by the way, when Joshua says to them, uh, he, meaning God, will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He's talking about those who are unrepentant, unrepentant sin, those who choose to reject God and serve the false gods of the Canaanites instead. As the next verse says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good so the people reaffirmed that commitment, their choice to serve their God. And as we see in these concluding verses, at least for this current generation, they did just that. Let's finish the story. Verse 29 to the end. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the place of the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph, and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Joshua compels the people under the old covenant to make a choice and they choose well. Likewise, Jesus compels us under the new covenant to make that same choice. Right after warning his followers about the dangers of chasing after the things of this world, all of the things that people worship in the culture around us, Jesus said to them, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew six twenty four. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve. Because whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. John 12, 25 and 26. Choose this day whom you will serve. This is the way of Christ. And to be sure, the way of Christ is not an easy path because you cannot serve God without denying yourself. Jesus made that abundantly clear in everything that he said and did. So the question is, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to deny yourself yourself? To let go of your own desires, to disregard your own needs, to refuse to make choices that would make your own life easier, preferring instead to make the difficult choices and then willingly accept whatever hardship those choices bring about in your own life for the sake of serving other people and the will of Jesus Christ. Choose this day whom you will serve. Are you willing to make that choice to follow Christ exclusively? That is the choice which at times will undoubtedly benefit someone else while simultaneously making your own life harder. But that is what it takes if you're going to choose to serve Jesus Christ. It takes a resolve from deep within your soul not just to stand up and say the right thing but to deny yourself so that you can stand up and do the right thing. The gospel demands a response to that challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve, either the way of Jesus or the way of ourselves. It's one or the other because there is no middle ground. So choose this day whom you will serve because there is only one answer. Even though it will be hard at times, there is only one answer. Answer, even though I will have to deny myself, there is only one answer to that challenge that will bring everlasting happiness, real fulfillment, and true purpose to your life. Only one answer to that challenge. Why don't we all say it together? As for me and my house, we will serve. The Lord. Amen. Let's pray.